Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. If you're new with us, we have been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we've just entered into chapter 10 a couple weeks ago. And when we started with Matthew chapter 10, we noticed that it opened up with Jesus choosing from his disciples 12 men who would become his apostles. And we saw that in verses 1 through 4. After the Lord chose these men for ministry, he then gave them their mission. In verses 5 and 6, he said, Don't go to the Gentiles nor to any cities of the Samaritans, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We talked about why he limited their uh, mission last time, so get the CD. After the Lord gave them their mission, he then said, This is your message. Go and preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in verses 9 through 15, he gave them some instructions to follow. And then in verses 16 to 23, he gave them some warnings to heed. And we looked at verses 9 to 15 last time. So that brings us to verse 16 of chapter 10, where Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents. And harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, because these verses come directly after verses 1 to 15... It has led many to conclude, and you know, understandably so, that in verses 16 to 23, Jesus is still talking about what would happen when he sent them out on that mission at that time. The problem with that is that the things that Jesus, Jesus describes in verses 16 to 23, listen, never happened to those men when he sent them out on that particular mission. So then, what was the Lord talking about here? Well, he was talking about a future time. A time that would occur many centuries after these men had lived and died. A time that Jesus would go on to teach about in Matthew 24. And the book of Revelation would unfold to us in chapters 6 through 19. We call this future time the Great Tribulation Period. Now, don't let the fact that Jesus placed these two events back to back... Uh, As if they were contiguous, don't let that throw you. It is quite common in Jesus' teachings, and if you look at the teachings of the Bible in general, that often two events are placed back-to-back, sometimes in the same sentence, and yet are separated by thousands of years. Let me give you two. The Bible is full of these examples. Let me give you two. Turn to Isaiah 61. If you don't know this, you're not going to understand this passage. All right. In Isaiah chapter 61, 
Jesus Christ, before he was incarnated upon the earth in human flesh, is actually prophesying through Isaiah. And it says in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, actually quoted from this passage to begin his public ministry. Remember when he went to Nazareth. He went to the synagogue there on the Sabbath, and they gave him the scroll of Isaiah to read. He found this passage, and he he read it. But if you compare the two passages together, Luke 4, 18 and 19, and then Isaiah 61, you realize that when the Lord began his public ministry, he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good tidings of the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the, of the prison of, to those who are abound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stopped there, closes the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. Well, when you go back to Isaiah, you realize the Lord stopped at a comma. What he did not include was, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't he include that last statement? Why did he stop at that comma? Because the stuff that came before the comma dealt with his first coming, and the stuff that came after the comma dealt with his second coming. That comma, guys, represents 2,000 years, a gap of 2,000 years. See, he came the first time to proclaim liberty to the captives, to heal those who are oppressed by the devil, etc. When he comes the second time, he will come in vengeance to judge the rebels upon the earth who have opposed him, who have rejected him. And as the Bible says, he will cast them into the, into the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of Almighty God, and he will judge them for their sin. But that one little comma, although those statements are backed up to each other, that comma separates, se- separates the first coming from the second coming. 2,000 year gap. Now, I'll have you turn to another one. John, the Gospel of John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, Jesus is again talking to his disciples. We pick it up in verse 28, where the Lord said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, talking about himself now, the Son of Man, will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Well, the resurrection of life is the resurrection of all believers. Okay, That would be the rapture. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church and he resurrects our bodies. Those who have died, of course, those Christians who have died in the church age, he resurrect, it's called the resurrection of life, right? The resurrection of condemnation, he just slaps right up against his comments on the resurrection of life. We wouldn't know from reading John 5, but if you go into Revelation, you realize that the resurrection of life or the rapture resurrection is separated from the resurrection of the unjust or the unrighteous by at least 1,007 years. What do you mean, 1,007 years? I'm pre-trib. I believe the rapture comes before the tribulation period starts. 
And I also believe the tribulation period is going to start pretty much right after the rapture takes place. That's my view. So if the tribulation period is seven years long, which it is, and then you have the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years long, and after the kingdom is done, then in Revelation 20, the Lord Jesus resurrects all those unbelievers. And they stand before him at the great white throne judgment before they are sentenced to hell for eternity. You can see that in the same passage, the Lord takes two events, puts them right up against each other, and yet they're divided by over a thousand years. So you can see how that works, right? Now, how can we be sure the Lord is doing this in Matthew 10 with regard to the events of verses 5 to 15 and then the events of verses 16 to 23? Well, once again, guys, it's because the description that the Lord gives of what would happen to these 12 apostles never happened to them on that mission. I mean, look at that. They're going to deliver you up and you're going to be killed. And that, Were they killed? Did they all come back? Of course they did. I mean, you know, you're going to be brought before kings and magistrates. That None of that happened when these men were sent out at that time. The language goes beyond, and that's how you know the language suddenly goes beyond the scope of that situation. All of a sudden now, and this is how it works, okay? Especially when you talk about prophecy, okay? You're reading along, and the prophecy starts out where God's going to judge a particular city in a particular area, we'll say, and he's pronouncing judgment on that city, and then all of a sudden, he's talking about judging the world and all the, uh, the enemies of God, and you think, wait a minute, did I miss something, or is the language just kind of, you know, is it transcending now this one particular city at that time? Of course it does, because that's often what happens. That's why many people misunderstand prophecy. They don't understand this concept. The language here in Matthew 10 goes beyond the events that transpired when these men went out at that time. Listen, and I'm not trying to confuse or bore you, all right? But I want you to have this in your mind. Later on, now this is later on from this. In Matthew 10, he sends the 12 out, right? Later on, after these guys have come back, in Luke 10, he sends 70 out, right? And if you read verses 1 through 12 of Luke 10 and compare them with Matthew 10, uh, verses uh, 5 to 15, they're almost identical. And yet the Lord Jesus doesn't talk about the persecution at that time, right? If you look at Luke, okay, he, he just talks about, and you know, if they don't receive you, move on, you know, and so on and so forth. But he doesn't talk about judgment in Luke's passage. All right, because in Luke's passage, he's just focusing on that time he was living at that moment. And when the 70 came back, they were filled with joy. They were pumped. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And no talk about persecution. No, none of the, you know, because they weren't persecuted. Now, if the 12 had been persecuted, like some say, verses 16 to 23 say, then why weren't the 70 persecuted in the same way? It's because verses 16 to 23 in Matthew's gospel, Jesus used the occasion to scope into the future. All right? See, those verses, Jesus is projecting into the future. He is talking about Jewish Christians who would be living during the Great Tribulation period, who would be taking the gospel at that time into a very hostile environment where they would be persecuted and killed by the Antichrist and his followers. 
I mean, just compare just for a moment a couple of the passages in Matthew 10 and compare them with passages in Revelation and in Matthew 24 where we know he's talking about the great tribulation period. Notice Matthew 10, verse 16. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and what? Harmless as doves. The idea behind, behind harmless is this. When they start to persecute you, and he's not talking about these guys here. He's talking about a future generation. I believe those Jewish believers who will be witnessing to people in the world during the tribulation period. He said, but I want you to be harmless as doves. What does that mean? Well, doves don't hurt anybody, right? He was saying, when I send you out and they begin to persecute you and kill some of you, don't retaliate. Don't seek revenge. You accept it. Just like I accepted it. Jesus, I could have called at any time to my father. He would have sent 12 legions of angels to deliver me from the hands of my enemy. That's 6,000 angels. We know one angel after dinner killed 185,000 Assyrians one night in the Old Testament. Hey, angels are tough guys, you know. 6,000? I think they could have handled anything. But Jesus said, I submitted to the will of my father. I have given myself over to this because it was part of my mission. You compare what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 16, to let's say Revelation 14, verse 12, where it's definitely talking about the great tribulation period. At one point it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And if you read the passage in the context, you'll realize what God is saying is, Look, when the Antichrist begins to kill you, You submit to it. Don't retaliate. Don't fight against the persecution because I'm going to come back and I'm going to take vengeance on those who have persecuted you and killed you and have rejected me. So you submit to it. This is your patience. This is your witness, all right? By you dying willingly, just like I went uh, to my death. I was uh, a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so I opened not my mouth. I submitted to it. You are to do the same. The idea of being harmless As doves in Matthew 10, verse 16, coincides with what Jesus said in Revelation 14. Give you just one more. In Matthew 10, verses 21 and 2, Jesus said, Now brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, let me compare that now to Something out of Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13, where Jesus Christ is definitely talking here about the Great Tribulation period. And he says in verse 12, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And you know what? There is no more powerful love on the earth than human love I'm talking about than family love. But during the Tribulation period, so many people are going to be deceived by the Antichrist. They're going to think he is God. He's going, to be, he's going to demand to be worshipped as God. And so many people will be so deceived by this guy, they will think he's God. Of course, during the tribulation period, God is going to be at work saving millions of people. But of course, the followers of the Antichrist are going to persecute and kill them. And that means among your own families. Families at that time. If you're you know, a son who has received Christ during the tribulation period, and your parents are Antichrist worshipers, they're going to turn you in. You're going to be killed. 
I mean, brother will turn in brother, mother, daughter, and so on. It'll be a horrible time. People will be without family love. The love of many will grow cold. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved, Jesus said. Saved from what? Well, saved from the persecution of the Antichrist. These folks are already Christians. That's why they're being persecuted. So they're already saved from hell. It's just that when Jesus returns, a lot of these Christians will have hit out, escaped the Antichrist. And when Jesus returns, he's going he's to save them from the persecutions of the Antichrist. And he's going to have them enter into the millennial kingdom with him. But notice, again, Matthew 10.22, Matthew 24, verse 13. Both of them talk about he who endures to the end will be saved. The language is the same because Jesus is talking about the same period of time in both passages. Again, the language of chapter 10, I believe, corresponds to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation teaches concerning the events that would transpire against Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, during the Great Tribulation period. And you know what, guys? We can go on and on, but I think you get the, the idea. I don't see verses 16 to 23 as happening at the same time that these 12 men went out on that preaching assignment in verses 15, excuse me, 5 through 15. Now, for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to talk to you about a doctrine that is gaining popularity in the body of Christ, but one that is leading to great confusion among Christians. And, I, and I'm, I'm wanting to put it right here in this passage. Uh, as we study this passage, the reason I'm including this teaching uh, here, you're going to see why in a moment, okay? Look, Words are powerful, we know that. Teachings have consequences. And bad doctrine always leads to bad conclusions, which messes people up. That's why it's so important to make sure that your doctrine is correct, all right? I've entitled this message this morning, The Coming Tribulation. Those who hold to this doctrine would no doubt entitle it, The Past Tribulation. I want to use our remaining time this morning to talk to you about a doctrine known as preterism. Preterism. The word preterism comes from the Latin word preter, which means past. Those who hold to this doctrine are called preterists. Preterists believe that the prophecies of Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation were largely or completely fulfilled in the past. And in particular, these prophecies were fulfilled in the events leading up to and surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D. Now, we here at Calvary Chapel, along with, I think, most other evangelicals believe that those things laid out in Matthew 24 and in the book of Revelation are speaking of future events that will happen shortly before the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Events, folks, that have not happened yet, they're still future. And I think most of you would say amen, right? I mean, the stuff in Matthew 24, Revelation, that's talking about a future time. It's future to us still. Because those events talk about the stuff that will happen right before Jesus Christ returns to the planet Earth. Now, we're seeing some of it already, but uh, most of it we have not seen yet. Preterists, however, believe that these things have already been fulfilled in the past, around 70 A.D., as I said. So things like the rapture, the abomination of desolation, which Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, verse 15, the coming of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast... The Great Tribulation, they believe all these have already taken place. They're over with. That's why I said last week, I believe preterism constitutes a rather serious distortion of what God has said. Some preterists believe, well, excuse me, let me just say this. Preterists 
even believe that Jesus already came back in 70 AD. Some preterists believe he came back invisibly and that he came back in judgment using the Roman armies as instruments of judgment to judge Jerusalem, which is why it was destroyed, because the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah and had pressured Pilate into crucifying him. They all believe he came back at that time. Some of them believe he came back invisibly, as I just said, evidence in the fact that he used the Roman armies to destroy Jerusalem. He came back in judgment. Some extreme preterists actually believe that he, Jesus came back physically and literally in 70 A.D. Now, the doctrine of preterism has experienced an explosive growth in recent years. The question is, well, why? It's been around for a while, but it's really become a hot issue, all right, gaining a lot of momentum. Why is this? It's because preterists have launched numerous websites and blogs and have flooded the Christian marketplace with all kinds of books and audio teachings promoting their view. And some of these folks are very heady individuals. Guys like R.C. Sproul in his book, The Last Days According to Jesus, uh, and Hank Hennegraaff's book, The Last Disciple, which he plans to make into a series, all right? Both R.C. Sproul and Hennegraaff are preterists. In fact, Hank Hennegraaff expressed the purpose, his purpose in writing uh, his book when he said, I wrote it to change the way Christians view the end times. When the book first came out, uh, they were advertising it on uh, Hank Hennegraaff's website, Christian Research Institute, and they were promoting the book. Some of the things that we're saying, and I got this, this came right off the website. It says, what if the prophecies of Revelation have already been fulfilled? Discover the code of Revelation and get a whole new understanding of this powerful book, end quote. Folks, if the book of Revelation is nothing more than a bunch of prophecies that have already been fulfilled, how is it a powerful book for us today? Also, on his website, Hank was promoting his book with this statement. He said, what if everything you've read about the rapture is wrong? Hank Hennigraph no longer believes in the rapture. But you see, for preterists, the rapture, the second coming, the one world religion, they've already taken place. These materials are selling very well, and they're changing the way many Christians view end times prophecies so that they're no longer looking for these things because in their minds they've already been fulfilled. Even though Jesus gave us prophecies about his coming, that it's hard to believe anyone could think that they've already been fulfilled. Listen to what Jesus one, some of the things Jesus said in Luke 21, verses 25 to 8, Jesus said, "Some of this here's will be some of the signs that will precede his coming. There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in, in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken." Then you will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. I mean, can anyone honestly say that these prophecies were fulfilled in the first century? I mean, if you read these prophecies, and, and so what preterists have to do is they have to spiritualize a lot of Scripture. Because obviously it doesn't fit literally. So they have to spiritualize it. So Jesus didn't come back visibly. He came back spiritually and so on. Look, there are two kinds of preterists. Those who are called full preterists, those who are called partial preterists. Full preterists believe 
that all biblical prophecies have been fulfilled and that nothing the Bible has predicted is yet to be fulfilled. Even they believe the bodily resurrection of believers and unbelievers, as well as the great white throne judgment, all been fulfilled. In fact, they teach, okay, that we are now living in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, folks, i got to tell you, if this is the new heavens and the new earth, I don't know about you, but I'm very disappointed. Very disappointed. I was hoping for so much more. Look, in all fairness, the guys like Ken Kennegraff and R.C. Sproul, they are not full preterists. In fact, they consider full preterists heretics. They refer to themselves as partial preterists. What is a partial preterist? Well, they believe that, that Matthew 24 and Revelation have only largely been fulfilled. They believe that there are still some things those books predicted that are yet to be fulfilled. Partial preterists don't believe that Jesus came back physically in 70 A.D., but they do believe he came back spiritually. Now, that's interesting because Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, when he was talking about the signs to look for that would precede his coming, he said, and after he talked about the signs, he said, and then, like lightning flashes across a dark sky from east to west, then I'm going to come. You're going to, every eye is going to see me. I'm going to light up the sky with my second coming glory. So, you know, how can you say he came back invisibly and spiritually when Jesus said, every eye is going to see me? Well, you say, well, they must have something. These are intelligent people. They must have something that they lean on to prove why they believe preterism is true. Well, they certainly do. I mean, you know, they have their passages in the New Testament that they lean on. In fact, there are three proof texts, quote unquote, that they use to support their preterist views. I'm going to give them to you quickly, okay? And I, I'm probably teaching some of you more about preterism than you ever wanted to know, all right? But it's important as we close this morning, you'll see why it's important to know this, all right? First of all, turn to Matthew 24. Now, there are numerous verses in Matthew 24 that they will lean on. I'll just take two that I think are the most common ones that they will bring up. Matthew 24, verse 21. And especially verse 34. Verse 34 of Matthew 24 is the foundational verse that uh, preterists use to prove their position. And I think that was the one that Hank Kennegraff used to open up his book with. Go over to the first page, Matthew 24, verse 34. Let's read verse 21. And remember now, Jesus is talking about the Great Tribulation. He says, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Verse 34, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And of course, Jesus Christ returns. Now, preterists believe that the events that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24, and you can read the entire chapter at your leisure, all had to happen before that generation died off. In other words, the generation that was living at the time that Jesus spoke these words. So they say, well, that was the first gen that first century generation. He says, look, I say to you, this generation, who's he talking to? He's talking to people in the first century. So that generation, they say, will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled and Jesus returns. Pretty clear, they say, right? But you have to understand something. The teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 
was in response to a question some of his disciples asked him earlier when they said to him, Lord, what are going to be the signs of your coming, second coming, and the end of the age? And so Jesus Christ begins to teach them what the signs will be that will precede, directly precede his second coming, and the generation in view will be will be that future generation that sees those signs. That generation will not die until all these things come to pass. He's not, you know, they asked him, well, Lord, when are you coming back? I mean, what should we look for? What kind of signs? I mean, they might have thought he was coming back in two weeks or two months. We know it's been 2,000 years, right? So he begins to tell them, okay, these are going to be the signs that are going to precede my coming. And you can read the list in Matthew 24. And then he says, and this generation will not pass away till everything is fulfilled. Well, the generation that begins to see those signs, well, those signs are going to take place during the last three and a half years of the seven. The seven is called the tribulation period. The last seven years, the last three and a half, the great tribulation period. Well, those folks that are living at that time and they begin to see these things coming to pass, well, they're not going to pass away until Jesus returns. It's only going to be three and a half years. The generation that's in view there is the, is the tribulation generation. Not the first century generation. I mean, again, listen to the language here. In Matthew 24, let's read verses 33 and 34. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Again, when he says, so you also, when you see these things, he's not talking about them specifically. He's saying when, you, when the Jewish believers who are alive and see the signs of my second coming, when, when they begin to see those things, that generation won't pass away until I come. But listen to what he says in verse 31. He's going to send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. When did that happen in the first century? Do we have any ancient reports, any historical accounts? Of people living in the first century who said, yeah, we heard this gigantic sound of a trumpet. We saw angels everywhere taking people away. I mean, you know, that never happened in the first century. So again, predators have to spiritualize it all. They can't prove it literally. Now, the second favorite verse predators use to prove their view is the one in our text this morning. That's why I wanted to put this teaching right here. Because their second favorite verse that they use to prove their preterism is Matthew 10, verse 23. Where Jesus said, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So preterists interpret this to mean that before the twelve even finished evangelizing the cities of Israel, as he commanded them to do in Matthew 10, verses 5 to 15, Jesus said, I will return. Well, Again, we've shown you that verses 5 to 15 are separate from verses 16 to 23. 16 to 23, future time. Great tribulation period, okay? But notice what Jesus says here in verse 23. He said, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Look, guys, we know this was, he was talking about a future time because the disciples never did finish going through the cities of Israel on that first round. Look, we know that they didn't finish that assignment because when Jesus was 
about ready to ascend back to his father in Acts chapter 1. He says to them in verse 8, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. If they had finished preaching in all the cities of Israel, he would have said to them, Look, now go to the Samaritans and go to the uttermost parts of the earth, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. You've already finished the work here in Israel. He didn't say that. Because they weren't done. They had not finished. All right? We know they never finished going through the cities of Israel because the people of Israel rejected their preaching, persecuted them, and forced them to be scattered outside of Israel. Jesus even alludes to this in Matthew 10.23 when he said, And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And as we open the book of Acts, as they begin to take the gospel out after Pentecost, we see how in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, Acts 13, verse 46, Acts 18, verse 6, and other places that when the disciples began to go out into the cities of Israel to preach, the persecution got so intense as the Jews just attacked them that eventually they were scattered and began to take the message outside of Israel to Gentile areas. Again, Jesus' disciples never finished on that first assignment in chapter 10 of preaching in all the cities of Israel at that time. But listen, there's coming a future time when the 144,000 Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, are going to take the gospel into very hostile areas, okay, in Israel and beyond. And I believe that's ultimately what's in view here in chapter 10, verse 23. He is talking about a future generation of Jewish believers who would be persecuted as they preach the gospel at that time Persecuted and killed by the Antichrist. All right, quickly, and we'll close, all right? Just one more area that they like to turn, have you turn to. They love to turn to the book of Revelation to prove their position. And they pull out numerous verses. Let me just give you three. It's enough to prove the point, okay? Preterists will take you to Revelation 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 16, 22, verse 12, among other places, to prove their point. Let me read them to you real quick. Revelation 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants things which must what? Shortly take place. Okay, well, it's going to happen quick, right? In fact, he goes on to say in chapter 2 verse 16, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And preterists believe that Jesus could not have made these promises about coming back shortly or quickly if he wasn't coming back for 2,000 years. And that seems to make sense, right? I mean, if he says, look, I'm coming quickly, and it's been 2,000 years, come on. They say he had to come back a lot earlier than this. But folks, the words shortly and quickly there in those verses both come from the same Greek word takos. We get the word tachometer from that Greek word. You guys know what a tachometer is. It's an instrument that, that registers how fast your crankshaft is turning in your, in your engine, right? It, it registers how many revolutions per minute your engine is turning over. In other words, how quickly your engine is turning. The same idea is applied to these verses. 
When John says that Jesus is coming, or Jesus said through John, that he was coming quickly, he used the word takos. It doesn't mean uh, quickly in the sense of, of a chronology. The word means rapidly, or um, quickly in the sense of motion. Once set in motion, is what he's saying, the idea is that once the book of Revelation begins, and these events are set in motion, they're going to happen quickly, rapidly. Because they're going to be so horrific, so incredibly cataclysmic, that God is not going to drag it out over decades. He can't because they're so devastating, nobody will be left alive on planet Earth. That's why Jesus said, when you begin to see these things happening, I'm coming quickly, all right? Because these events are going to be rapid fire, and they're going to lead to the return of Christ. Even as Jesus said, Matthew 24, verses 21 and 2, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no one or ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be, would be left alive but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So the events of the Great Tribulation are not going to be spread out over decades. Again, because nobody would survive if it was. So God's going to do this stuff quickly once it happens. And um, Jesus is going to return. Now, let me just say this to you. Why is this important for us to know? Let me tell you why I think it's important. Okay? The Lord Jesus Christ wanted us to be vigilant, looking for his return, right? A lot of Christians are waiting for his return. But they're not all watching for his return. And there's a difference. I can be waiting for somebody, and when they come, they can catch me off guard. But if I'm watching for somebody's coming, they're not going to catch me off guard. How are we able to watch for Jesus' return? The only way to watch for his return is to have signs that point to his coming, right? That's why he gave us so many things to look for that would indicate he was coming very soon, right? And the closer we got to his return, the faster the signs would be coming. I told you guys years ago, when our kids were little, still young, we took them to Disney World one year, right? And what is Disney World? It's in Orlando, Florida, maybe about 13, 1,500 miles, okay? So you start off from Chicago, and you're working your way down to Florida, right? Going to Disney World. I don't think I saw my first sign indicating Disney World was coming up until about 1,000 miles into the trip, right? And then I don't think I saw the second sign for another 150 miles. And then, you know, the third sign came even closer. I'll tell you what, when you're about 50 miles out, those of you folks who have been to Disney World... When you're about 50 miles away from Disney World, aren't those signs coming like whenever? They're like 20 feet apart, all right? Well, you know you're getting close to the Magic Kingdom. Well, I'll tell you what. Jesus has given us signs to look for. His kingdom is coming, and it's not magic. It's powerful, and it's real. And it's not going to be one area which is the happiest place on earth. It's going to be the whole world, Right? But the closer we get to his return, we see the signs coming ever quicker, indicating his coming is getting nearer. Which, what does that do? It causes us to be vigilant, right? We don't want to be entangled in the things of this life because Jesus is coming. The signs are all there. You can't pick up a newspaper or turn on the news without seeing a sign of, of, of his coming. 
So what does that do? It makes us vigilant, right? It gets us excited. We want to go out there and we want to witness because we got family and friends that don't know the Lord. I want to tell them about Jesus before he comes back, right? And the rapture happens. So what does the devil do? He doesn't want you vigilant. He doesn't want you watching. So the devil gets in there. What does he do? He foists a doctrine on the church that says, oh, it's already happened. All the signs have been fulfilled. So now what? Now Christians are not watching. They're sleeping. They're, they're really not vigilant because there's nothing to be looking for anymore. You see how the devil does this? And I'm not saying that people who have bought into this doctrine are bad folks. A lot of them are very godly, sincere believers. Brilliant men and women. But they've missed it on this one, I believe. Anything that takes your eyes off of the coming of Jesus Christ, to me, is not of God. It's not of God. I don't care who's promoting it. I don't care how smart they are. I don't care how big their church is. I don't care how many books they've written. I don't care. If they do anything to get your eyes off of Jesus Christ's return, and the only way to keep is to have those signs, if it removes the signs, there's nothing to look for. How can you be watching? So may God help us to understand that this is one of those last days deceptions, I believe, that is causing a lot of Christians to stop looking for the Lord's return. And I'll tell you what, at this time in our history, when Jesus is this close to coming back, I want to be really vigilant. I want to really be watching. And I know you do too. So may God give us the grace to keep our eyes Looking up, when you see these things, Jesus said, begin to happen. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. It's getting close, guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That, Lord, that you have not left us in darkness, that these things should overtake us as thieves. But you've given us your truth, your light. We are sons and daughters of the light, not of the night or darkness any longer. And, Lord, give us grace to keep our eyes looking up, to stay vigilant and watchful. Give us grace, Lord, not to be sleeping in the light, but to be awake, to be telling others. We just thank you, Lord, that you have given us things to to watch for. We praise you. We ask for grace, Lord, to be vigilant. In Jesus' name, amen.